Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. The series that we've been walking through over the course of the past month um, is in line with Lent, our season of Lent, reflecting on the gospel, the flavors of Easter, and that's, that's things like sin and, and the fall, the coming of the king and redemption. And this is a famous text. We, if you've grown up or been inside a church for a period of time, you probably have read something like this text uh, in the past. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention this text in detail. And we learn, we learn a lot about it as we kind of piece everything together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He's hailed as king on Palm Sunday, just a week before Easter. Every one of the Gospels see virtually immediately You know, they all write it a little bit differently. Jesus coming to the temple right after that. Because on Palm Sunday, he doesn't just come to the city as king. He comes to the temple as king. And what he does at the temple is so odd, it's so strange, that all the gospel writers thought they had to write about it. They all talk about what he does. This is the same Jesus who, in the book of Matthew, says, come to me if you're tired and weary. He says, I am gentle, and I am meek and lowly of heart. And yet here, he takes uh, a whip made, made out of cords, and he's filled with anger. And the act is so violent, it's so unlike him. You have to ask. If you've just read this for the first time, you have to ask, what does it mean? Why did he do that? It's the only recorded act of violence by Jesus in the Bible. So we're going to spend some time unpacking this. And so to answer the question of what does it mean, we're going to see it in three points. One, the significance of the temple. Two, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus' overturning of the tables, the cleansing of the temple. And three, I really had a tough time with the third point, why we don't have any temples anymore. The significance of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, and why there are no more temples. Very simple. First, we're going to look at the significance of the temple. When we hear of the temple, we think, the way, we think of the temple the way we often think about church buildings. Philadelphia, one of the largest cities in the country, boasts per capita or per block, from what I hear, more churches per block than any other city in the United States. Most of those churches have congregations of less than 30 people. They're dying churches. We think of the temple as one big synagogue, or as like one big church where people come and they just hold services. So it's possible to project our view of the church or what we do in the local church on the temple. But the temple is entirely different. Because no matter where you were in the world, you had to come to that temple. It was a unique place, incredibly unique. And two things happened there that happened no other place in the entire world. First, the temple was a place where you can actually meet God. You can actually encounter God. It was a place for personal encounter. The temple was a place where heaven and earth, where the eternal and the temporal, where the supernatural 
and the natural intersect. It's where the gap between man and God were bridged. That's the temple. All the ancients knew that there was a transcendent absolute power that resided and that there was a gap that had to be crossed. There was a gap that had to be bridged somehow and that's why they had temples. Temples were these high structures and at the top of the temple, there were priests. But in order to enter the temple, um, where you're going to go where God lived, where his presence dealt, God had to let you in. He had to let you in. And that's how uh, you saw him face to face. It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to, it's another thing to read about God. It's still another thing to, to, uh, to hear about God. But it's a wholly different thing to actually meet him, to see him face to face, to be intimate with God. You understand the concept of intimacy and meeting somebody, seeing somebody face to face. Um, it goes like this. When you say something, you offend somebody. What does the person say? They say, get out of my face. Talk to the hand, or they put their hand in front because they don't want you to see their face. Because a face represents intimacy. We do that today. We don't, if you say, I don't want to be near you, you, you kind of turn away from the person. Get away from me. Get away from my face. The claim was that at the temple, that's where God's face dwelt. It's where you saw him face to face. There's this passage in the Old Testament where you have the Israelites, every single time they entered into battle, they would carry the ark with them. They would bring the ark out. And the ark was the presence of God that was standing there, residing there, as they would fight their enemies. And there's this one passage where this woman, she's, she's pregnant. Um, she was pregnant. She was the wife of one of the priests. It was an evil priest. And uh, she was the wife of one of the priests. And she hears the news that the ark was actually taken away that the enemies had captured the ark. And uh, as she's lying there and dying, you know, giving birth, in pain, she's so distressed that she's in labor. She dies. But as she gives birth, she gives birth to a son. And the son she gives birth to is named Ichabod. The Hebrew word for Ichabod is ikavod. Kavod means glory. When you ever put an I in front of the glory, it means none. No glory. The ark was taken away. The presence of God is gone. No more glory. And she dies because the glory of the Lord had departed. And what God is saying is there is actually a spot where you can come in and know me. There's actually a place where you can go, where you can encounter me personally, not just vaguely, not just generally, but you could actually know me personally. My royal presence you can experience, more than experience, you can be intimate with the Shekinah glory of God, the overwhelming face of God, the presence of God, right in the middle of the temple, the Holy of Holies. It was fatal for everybody. Look at Isaiah in your call to worship. Isaiah falls to the ground the moment he sees God. It's overwhelming for him. In fact, it's so overwhelming that one man, the high priest, was allowed to enter into the holy presence of God once a year on behalf of the sins of the people. But it was a place where you could still come and meet God and experience God and encounter God. The second thing that the temple did was that it was a place of sacrifice. It wasn't just a place for meeting God face to face, but it was also a place, because it was also a place where you could sacrifice to God. That's why you had the money changers. If you know this story, they're money changers. Jesus enters into the temple. They're sellers with animals and money changers. It's a place where blood sacrifice was to be made for sin. 
Now, where does this come from? Back in the Garden of Eden, all the way in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, that's where you see the original sin. The Garden of Eden was the original temple. What's the temple? It's a place where you can meet God, where God's face dwelt. It's where Adam walked with God in the cool of the garden. That's what it said in the Bible. And so he knew God face to face. That's where he had peace. That's where he had shalom. That's where he, he met God in the sanctuary. The whole place was a sanctuary where he, he could experience and sense and know the presence of God. He walked with God. But when Adam decided to center his life around something other than God, that's when he lost the presence of God. That's when he lost the peace of God. He lost the sanctuary. They were driven out of the garden. And when God drove them out of the Garden of Eden, it says in the Bible that he placed, uh, right at the foot, the, the gate of the garden, he put a flaming sword there that was flashing back and forth. In other words, you can't escape and go back into the garden. They got pushed out. Imagine getting kicked out of your house. You want to run back in. There's a flaming sword flashing back and forth. It prevents your way from getting back into the presence of God again. And since that day, We've been trying to get back into the Garden of Eden. We do it our own way. We do it in our own way. We want to get wealthy. We want to be in a relationship because if we say, if we can just have that thing, life would be perfect. It would be paradise. The thing is, since the brokenness that's entered into our lives, that paradise that we've been working for, it breaks us. It actually kills us. That's what the sword is about. To get back into paradise, you're going to die. If you try to get back in there on your own, you're going to die. And what that meant, that flaming sword, it meant that a payment has to be made for your sins. The sword represents justice. It represents a payment. You have to pay a price to get back into the garden. You have to enter at your own risk. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, the wages of sin is death. That's the first part of your word of encouragement today. And that's why the temple, that's why at the center of the temple, there's a holy of holies, the glory of God resided there, but there was this thick veil, a very, very thick curtain that shielded, it veiled the Holy of Holies. You couldn't just walk in. Once a year, a high priest would enter in with a blood sacrifice. An animal would go underneath the sword. Once a year. It symbolically represented that you can still get in, that God had made a way to still meet with you and encounter you, but you can't do it without a sacrifice. Now, the prophets, the prophets, they prophesied that God's glory would one day cover the entire earth. One day, the glory of God will return in its full force. One day, the entire world would become the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies. That was mouthwatering for the Jews. They wanted that. They craved that. They waited for that. And that's why they were so offended by what Jesus does. The latter part of this text, you know, verses 47, 48, they were offended by that. If you look at the next chapter in verse 20, they go, who gave you the right to do that? They question him. The temple represents the teaching that you just can't approach God anyway. You can't just pop in and say hello. You can't just do that. It was a place of meeting, but if you wanted to meet God, there had to be a sacrifice. Something had to go underneath the sword. Why? Because the temple teaches us that God is personal. He longs to be personal but he's also infinite. He's loving, but he's also holy. You can't just go in in any way. You have to deal with your sin. 
in order to get into the presence of God. That's what the temple was about. Now, if you're saying, well, that's a really primitive view of God. That's kind of rude. You know, what kind of God is, is that? Because I believe in a God that's just all love. I believe in a God that's all love. Now, think about this. If you're the victim of a crime, a major crime, and you suffered violence, you suffered complete loss, or you don't even have to be that dramatic. Everyone here at some point in time was lied to by one of their best friends. Everyone here understands the sting of being betrayed by somebody, a good friend of yours, a very, very good friend of yours, maybe even family. You know that a person just comes back to you and says, sorry, bye, hello, it's not enough. You know that. Why? It's because a debt has been incurred when you've been wronged. I'm going to tell you just a quick illustration. I wasn't going to share this, but I'll just say this anyway. Imagine that you're of age and you want to adopt a child. And so you do all this research and, you know, you say, you know what, that that child has no idea who you are. But you've chosen that child to become your child. And you adopt him ever since he or she is a baby. And so you get this, this child and you're raising her up. And you pour your life into that child. You're just going to pour everything you've got into that child. Because that's what parents do. A loving parent would do that. And you're, you're saving money, but why are you saving money? So that ultimately that child can enjoy it. And you're saving all this money up and you're raising the child up and you're loving the child and you're just, just giving everything you've got for that, for that child. And finally the child gets to an age where they go to college. And they get into a, a nice college somewhere in the city, you know, in Philadelphia. And, and you say, okay, well, I'm going to now take a portion of my life savings and now pay for that child to go to college. And you tell that child, I have this bank account set up for you, you know, so you can pay tuition. I'm going to pay your tuition with this bank account. And I'm also going to give you, pay for your living expenses while you're there. And the child takes and understands and gets all the information. And on her way to college, she takes a huge left turn, disappears. The next day, you check your bank account, all the money's gone. All the money's gone. And the child disappears. And you hear, uh, you know, because uh, we live in a, a very, very connected age, you hear through the grapevine that the child is in the city somewhere, changed her name, and is now living on her own completely regardless of where you are and how you feel, lives on her own. You got a good sizable amount of money stored up for that child. Just, she's just blowing it away on her friends, just whatever she's doing. You don't even know what she's up to. And after seven or eight years, having completely lost a child, you can't find her. One day she comes in and she says, what's for dinner? What do you say? You say, oh, spaghetti and meatballs, come join us. Is that what you would say? you're going to be taken off guard. And you're going to be like, what? How do you just walk in like that? You can't just walk in like that. You've been gone for eight years. I don't even know you anymore. You're just going to walk in like that? So then the child says, oh, that's right. Um, Sorry. Is that enough for you? Would that be enough? Everybody in this room knows that if you've experienced betrayal, if you've been lied to, Sorry is not an, an apology is not enough. It's not primitive. You're just you're the same way. It's not primitive. What kind of God? What kind of God? I believe in a God of love. A God, a God of love wouldn't do that. I want to submit to you. Only a God of love will be angry when you take a left turn. Only a God of love would be angry about that. You can't just get back in. You can't just casually walk back in. The Bible says we are that orphan. The Bible says we have committed the violent crime. The Bible says we are the ones that created the gap. A gap, a debt has been incurred. 
If you have a creator, if you know that a creator is there, then we owe him. And, uh, you know, we've lived our lives as we've gotten everything from him, but we just do with those things as we please. That's why we are the way we are with money. That's why we are the way we are with sex. That's why we are the way we are with one another, for that matter. That's sin. You know, that's the way we are with our children or our jobs. We all want to be our own masters. That's sin. And as a result, every single time that you decide that you want to meet with God, the issue of sin has to come up. It has to come up. If you think, well, God's just a God of love. He just loves everybody. Well, then if he just loves everybody, then he also loves serial killers. And he loves rapists. And he loves Hitler. You're not getting it. The average human being would know uh, after that kind of betrayal, you have to deal with bridging the gap. You have to deal with bridging the gap because God is love. The debt is there. Now, if that's the way we deal with sin, how much more an infinite God with infinite love deal with betrayal and sin? Um, a priest would op- approach the temple and he would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would approach him with a payment, a form of sacrifice in the form of an animal. Blood had to be spilled. That's the sacrifice. And though that helped, it was only temporary. It was meant to be a temporary provision. It was never meant to be a complete provision. That's why the high priest, you know, if you've ever heard the Apostles' Creed, um, after he performs his duty, it says, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's what Jesus did after he performed his sacrifice and he rose, he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The high priest would never sit because the work was never done. You know, when you're finished work, you sit. So uh, it was never, the, the sacrifice was, was never meant to be complete. It was always partial. Sacrifices were partial because you had to keep doing them because we keep sinning. So every, single, every year you would have to come and make the sacrifice and, um, and you couldn't go behind the veil where God actually dwelled, where the raw presence of God dwelled. The temple was a place where you met with God. It was a place of sacrifice for sin, but it was incomplete. Now why am I sharing this? Jesus comes in. And he begins to act like he owns the place. And he starts yelling and he says, I want my house. My house is intended to be a house of prayer where you really get to pray. Not just a place where you you buy things for sacrifice and you move on. Not just a place where you can be mechanical in your faith. I don't want you to just come and say some prayer. I want you to really pray. I don't want you to just come and, and utter um, so, and recite some sort of prayer. I want you to really meet with me. I don't want you to just come and have a mechanical relationship with me. I want you to have an organic relationship with me. I want you to encounter me. I want you to meet with me face to face. That's the meaning of the temple. That's the significance of the temple. Now, the second point is the cleansing of the temple. What does it mean? Why did Jesus come in and do that? This gentle, meek Jesus. Why does he do that? And he does it for several reasons. One, Jesus says, my temple will be a house of prayer. He was upset. He was violently upset because the people weren't genuinely praying. That was the purpose. They, weren't, they couldn't genuinely pray. Why? Because when he entered the temple, he saw these sellers and he saw the money changers. Now, I'm going to kind of set the stage for you, but who are these sell- sellers? And I mentioned previously that people all over the world came to the temple. Jews in particular came from all over the world to be at the temple. And if you're coming from all over the world, you couldn't just bring an animal with you because the animal would most likely die. 
on the journey. You know, you put an animal on a ship and they travel for days. It could easily die. Then you got to walk for miles and miles. It would die. It had to be. And on t- it, it couldn't just die. It had to be healthy. It had to be without blemish. It was a very particular animal that you could bring for sacrifice. And so you couldn't just bring an animal from far away. That's why the sellers were there. It was a very lucrative business that grew around the temple. You had sellers, people to sell the animals to you, which was a provision. It was something that God allowed. You needed that. But you also had the money changers because you came from all over the world. It was a foreign exchange that had to take place to change the money so that you can get your change back and, and, and make uh, the currency exchange. So you needed the exchangers. You needed the sellers because the Jews are scattered all over the world and they had to come back to the temple to meet with God. And they had to come back to the temple to make the sacrifice. But the problem was Jesus found these sellers right in the, inner, the outer court of the temple. It's where Gentiles who didn't really know God, came to actually experience and know God. It's, it, imagine a person who, who, do, who only heard about God wants to come and really experience him. But they weren't Jewish. They couldn't enter into the deeper parts of the temple. They were only allowed to come out to the outer courts. That's where the sellers were. And uh, so he found these sellers and, and these money changers in the temple, in the place where they should be praying, in the place where they should be focusing, the temple was, was this outer court. This outer court was reserved for non-believers. So when you enter in, instantly you're met by the smell of the animals. Bad, bad smell. And instantly you, saw, you heard the noise, the haggling, the money-changing hands. So these, so these non-believers will come in. They got the smell. They got the animals. They got the noise. They got the distraction. They got the haggling. Meanwhile, the other people can go into the deeper parts where it was quiet and they could focus and pray. Jesus was very upset about that. He was angry about that. Have you ever been to the Italian market on a Saturday morning? Early in the morning on a Saturday, you go into the city, the Italian market, where Rocky used to run. You know, if you watch the movie Rocky, they still do it. You ever drive by? You, well, you can't drive by. First of all, you can't drive through. You've got to park blocks away, and you've got to walk through. When you walk through, you're being bumped around by everybody. A guy my size can't, it's very, very difficult. You, you can hurt your back that way. You've you got you to fight your way through. And as you fight your way through, there's the smell of the food mixed with the fish in the heat. And people are arguing over their prices. They're haggling. And you see the money-changing hands. And people are screaming and yelling. And, and you, hear, you hear all the noise. And then there's all, we're in the city. So now you hear all the cars and all the traffic. And all that's taking place in one area. Now you take the Italian market. Let's move it right in here. And let's have worship together. Would you come to this church? Because the distraction, you can't focus. You can't focus. And, and according to the scholars, Jesus is saying, I don't want you to just have this mechanical worship. I want you to have an organic worship. I want you to really, really pray. But the problem was there was so much distraction. So he enters into the temple, and he sees all that going on. Religion is outside in. It's mechanical. I do what's right, so I feel connected to God. Jesus says, I want you to have something that's inside out. I want you to be so transformed in meeting me that every time you come and and see the sacrifice, I want you to be moved by that. I want you to experience encountering me again. It's a house of prayer. That's what I want. Religion is about being nice. The gospel is about being new. Religion is about being a nice person. Jesus, it's not about being a nice person. 
It's not about just doing the right thing. I want you to be a new person. I want you to know me. I want you to encounter me. What's in the temple? When you go to the temple, like many people who come to church, there is weeping, but then there's comfort. There's anger. We hold anger, but then there's also forgiveness. There's guilt, but then there's freedom and mercy. There's a relationship. You know, when you have guilt and anger and weeping and crying, you're having a relationship with a person. That's what it is. And, and so many people are unbelievably full of religious busyness. You know what we're doing? We're bargaining with God. We're just haggling. And we're making all this noise. And you want to do all these things and you're just busy and you're just busy and all this noise and there's haggling and there's distraction. But there's no real prayer. There's no real connection. Jesus comes in. He's angry at what he sees. And he cleanses the temple and he says, you know what? You, I want you to be able to be real with God. My temple, my house is going to be a house of prayer. The second thing he says, he says, it's my house. The cleansing of the temple, Jesus comes in. Isaiah comes in, he falls to the ground. He sees God, he falls to the ground. He says, woe is me. Jesus comes in, he just cleanses the temple. He, acts, he has his way with the house. Whenever you come in and have your way with the house, it's usually because it's your house. It's a declaration of authority, ownership, kingship. What Jesus is saying is, I'm God. This is my house. I'm the king. It's an amazing, you know, one, one, it's an amazing thing he's saying. One commentator, he says, when Jesus comes in, he's rearranging the furniture in the temple. He's overturning the t- tables and he's rearranging furniture. What does that mean? There's only one person who can come in. Imagine a person comes into your house and just starts moving things around. He says, you know what would look better? This would look better. He starts rearranging the furniture in your house. He'd be like, you don't own this house. What are you doing? I like it this way. The only person who has the authority to rearrange furniture in any house is the owner of the house. That's what he says. That's what this commentator says. He, Jesus comes in. He acts like he owns the place. Why? Because he does. He does own the place. How do you apply this truth? In your life, there are moments in our lives where Jesus comes in and he rearranges the furniture in your life. It's one of the ways that you know that Jesus is in your life, the turbulence in your life. If you're experiencing stress or pressure or things in your life are chaotic and thrown around in your heart, where there's a conflict between the things that you want and then you understand, it makes you feel guilty, and there's, there's all this conflict, you live a conflicted life. Jesus is rearranging furniture in your life. What that means is that you know, on Palm Sunday, everybody saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem and they cried out and they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. What they're saying is, Jesus, come, come. You're the king. You're the king. I want you in my life. I want you in my life. Come in. Hosanna, which means save me, rescue me. Being a Christian means that every week, every day, we get to experience a Palm Sunday. Every day. Because what we're saying is we see the brokenness and the messed up lives that we live, the brokenness in our lives, the messed up world we live in. We're saying, Jesus, come in. You're the king. Come in. Take ownership and rearrange furniture in my life. Save me. That's what we're we're saying. How do you know that Jesus is in your heart? How do you know if Jesus really came into your life? He rearranges furniture when he does. When Jesus is riding in, he gets in, he goes straight to the temple. What does he do? He rearranges everything. He's overturning the tables. He's chasing people out. 
We like to say, you know, I believe in God, but I believe it's also, you know, my right to decide what's good for my life, what's right for my life, what's wrong for me. I'm going to submit to you. God isn't here to just come in and ask for advice or just give you some tips on improving your life. That's not what God came in here to do. If you have a God that never rearranges furniture in your life, if you have a God that never comes in, that never challenges you, that never argues with you, that never conflict, conflicts with you, that never convicts you, he, there's no, that, that kind of God doesn't exist in your life. A God that doesn't argue with you, with your sinfulness, with your lifestyle, a God that doesn't conflict with you, a God that doesn't rearrange furniture, isn't God. He isn't king. So some of us, our lives are really, really messy, and we feel convicted about a lot of things in our lives. I want to encourage you. It's very possible that the king may be coming in. That's why. He's rearranging furniture. He makes life really, really messy, really, really uncomfortable. He disrupts things. He gets your attention. How do you know he's present? He comes in, he's rearranging furniture, he's pushing you, he's confronting you. What does he confront you about? I mean, was there anything wrong with the money changers? Was there anything wrong with the sellers? Absolutely not. In fact, it was part of the whole sacrificial system. You know, God was actually providing that as, a, as an opportunity so that we could meet with him. Nothing wrong with that. It's, but one of the ways that we can tell that Jesus is in our lives is that he goes straight into your temple, to the holy of holies in your life, the things that you cover up with your veil, the things that you say, this is very, very personal, very, very sacred. Only a few people can be let in. Only a few people I will let in to actually even give me advice about it. Because this thing is mine. This is the thing that's, that's the thing that drives my life. It's the center of my temple. Jesus will come in. He will talk about things that are wrong in your life. We think immediately, oh, so what you're saying is Jesus is going to confront me and and address the things that are wrong in my life. And he does. But it's actually even more than that. Sometimes he comes in. He even challenges the things that are right in your life. The reasons for why you do the good things in your life. A lot of us live good lives because we think God is honored just by our being good. I was good today. So God must be happier about me today than he was yesterday when I was bad. That's the way we live our lives. We think that if we do things honorably and live honorable lives in honorable professions, some of the most honorable professions in our lives, we think that God looks at us to say, you're a more honorable person. Folks, if that was the case, friends, why would Christ ever need to have come? The truth is, the reality is, that it's not just about the good things that we do in our lives. It's about those good things or bad things that we've let in too far. It's too deep in the center that drives everything. But the Bible says anything that you place in your holy of holies will take you further away from God. You know what it's like to be the child of parents that see you as the meaning of of their lives? Some of us have parents like that. You're the reason that they kept going in life. You're the reason why they came to the United States. You're the reason why uh, their marriage is still together. Some of them may, might have even told you that if you weren't in my life, I would have left your father a long time ago, or I would have left your mother a long time ago. You're the reason that the marriage is kept together. You're the reason why they, they have strength to continue on every day. You're the things that they built that their lives on emotionally. We call this the center. Anything that, you, that keeps you going like that, that's the center. 
No matter what, as long as you are okay, as long as you are thriving, their lives are okay. In essence, what they're saying is, you are the holy of holies. You're the sacred. You're at the core. You've gone all the way into the temple, the holy of holies in their hearts. And what are the results of that? You think the results are good? You know. For those of you who who are in that place, you know. It's destructive. Because of the expectations that they have of you, you know. It's destructive. They have so much expectation, and you can never please them. You can never please them. And they're always trying to control you, and they'll use every way to control you. They'll manipulate you. They'll, They'll fight with you. They'll do whatever they can to control you. And they're always hovering. Some of you are parents like that. And they're always fighting with you. Why do they do that? Because anything that gets in too far and takes the role of God becomes destructive. And it's going to make you anxious. One of the first things it does is it makes you anxious. That's why we worry about our jobs. That's why we worry so much about our relationships. Because nothing but God can bear the burden of God, of being God to you without destroying you. Everything else is too needy. Everything else is too needy uh, or too broken. But Jesus in our lives, he shows us that he is God. He demonstrates ownership by putting things back in their rightful place. That's what he does. That's why he's rearranging furniture in our lives. That's why we say, we can say, save me. You go to your job and you say, my job is the thing that's going to give me ultimate meaning in life. Live that out for 10 years and see where you end up. You do that with your marriage or your child. You put those things at the center and you say, these are the things that determine my sense of worth. See what happens in 10 years. You will destroy that relationship. You will lose that job. You will destroy yourself in the process. The Bible promises that. The whole message of the Bible is that. That's the bad news. The good news is that you put Christ at the center, God at the center. He rearranges everything on one hand. That can be painful sometimes. It's like rearranging furniture. But he will save you from destruction. That's the promise. I'm going to wrap up with this last point. Why there's no more temples. The temple was a good thing. The temple was a beautiful thing. But it was a temporary thing. And when Jesus comes in, he overturns the tables, he cleanses the, te- uh, the, the, the temple, and the people come up to him. They say, what authority do you have? That's what, he says, that's what they say in verse 20. You kind of, uh, chapter 20, but you see that towards the latter verse, verse 48 here. And what Jesus' response is this. You know, they say, what authority do you have? He says, what authority? I am the temple. You know, I, I am the temple. I've come to replace the temple. In the last verse in this passage that we read, I'm going to read it. It says, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. You know, um, after he was cleansed, uh, the people come to him. Right afterwards, they want to challenge him. So all they could do is challenge him. They say, what, by what authority do you have to do these things? How do you act like you own it? Jesus says, own it. You know, John chapter 2 explains this. Jesus says, tear this temple down. In three days, I will raise it up again. In other words, own the temple. Own the temple. I am the temple. They didn't get it. We get it, but they didn't get it. What he's saying is absolutely remarkable. He says, I am the real and final temple. I, John chapter 1, the word, of, the word of God, the word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 5 of John chapter 1, 
the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That word dwelling is the word tabernacle. And another word for tabernacle is temple. He says Jesus came down and became the temple in the flesh. What he's saying is I am the real temple. I am the final temple. I have become flesh. I am the person. I am God in person. You can actually see me face to face. I am the way to meet God because I am God. I am the way to sacrifice to God because I am the sacrifice. I am the place of sacrifice because I am the sacrifice. The gospel tells us that on the day that Jesus died, at that moment, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. If it was from bottom to top, it's as if we tore that we worked to get in. But the veil was ripped from top to bottom. Why? Because it was God who ripped it at the seams. So that a way would be made for us to enter into the Holy of Holies and see God face to face again. In other words, we can walk with God again. We have access to God. Why? It's because Jesus took the sword. Jesus went under the sword. The sword struck him down. But as he was struck, the law of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God was broken. It was fulfilled. Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. He paid the price so that that same royal presence of God, which was fatal to Moses, even Moses, which was fatal to the people of God, can now mean life and glory and peace for us. That's why the veil was ripped from top to bottom. Jesus, God made the way. On the cross, the veil was torn because Jesus' body was torn. We get to have access. You know why? Because on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've abandoned me. You've left me. I have no more access. That's why we have access. Jesus cried out on the cross, I've been forsaken. The glory of God has departed from me. In other words, I am the ultimate ikavod. The glory of God has left me. Why? Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus lost the presence of the Father so we could have the presence of the Father. Jesus lost his life. The wages of sin is death. Why? The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord so we can have life. And yet, do you know that on the cross he was still praying genuinely? My God, my God. He was reciting Psalm 22. He was still praying He was genuinely praying with all that distraction. People are yelling insults at him. They were throwing things at him. They were screaming at him. The people left and right were talking to him. And yet he was genuinely praying. He lived a life to the end the way we should live. Even with the distraction. Why? So we could genuinely pray. You know what that means? If you believe that Jesus died, if you've received him, that same presence comes into your life too. We call that union. We call that union. When you unite with Jesus, the Bible says when you unite with Jesus, the ultimate temple becomes a part of you. So in essence, you become a temple. Your body becomes a temple. That's what the Bible says. The apostle Peter calls us living stones built up, united with Christ because Jesus is the great high priest. What does that mean? We're the temple and Christ is the high priest. It makes us priests. We can become priests. He says, you are a royal priesthood. Jesus is the king that makes you a king, royal. Jesus is the high priest. It makes us priests. We can worship again. 
That's why when we work, you know, it's kingship. When you're doing well in your job, you're a king. Jesus is restoring that so that you can become a king in Christ. How does that shape you? How does that change you? How does that change the way you do your work? How does that change the way you lead your children? How does that change the way you handle your relationships or your family? Peter says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. If Jesus Christ has come in, if you accepted that he is God and the ultimate sacrifice and the final temple, you know what happens? Your whole life will get rearranged. He comes in as king. He owns you. He changes you. He enters into your presence because he's a sacrifice. You can have access to God. Your prayer life will change. When you read the Bible, you can actually read it. You want to read it. You understand it. But when you make him king, you obey it. That's what that means. A lot of us are afraid of that. I'm going to close with this. A lot of us are afraid of that. I, pe- I talk to people all the time, and they tell me, you know, I love that. I love what you said about that. But honestly, I don't want to give up control of my own life. I don't want my furniture rearranged. A lot of people say, you know, I'd be happy to be a Christian if I could just hold on to this one thing in my life. Honest to God. If I could just hold on to this, because I'm afraid of what God will do if I give it up. You know what you're doing? You're turning the temple of God into a marketplace. You're haggling with God. Let me keep this. I'll give you this if you give me this. You're still bargaining with God. That's why you have anxiety. That's why there's no rest. The temple, we are the temple. We can have peace. We can have rest anywhere. Jesus is going to rearrange furniture. Is he doing that in your life? If he's doing it, that means you've let something in too far. And that's why there's turbulence. Your, your heart has become like a zoo. Listen to him. Go to him. Crown him. That's Palm Sunday. Let's pray.